Good day. This is Theology in the Dirt. It is March the 9th, 2021. My name is Mitchell Jolly. And I am Keith Thompson. Justin Owens. Sweet. Gentlemen, it's good to see you. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you guys for listening to Theology in the Dirt. Our aim is to try to practice our theology in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. And so uh, today we're going to try to get after that on a topic we'll introduce here in just a moment. But before we do, it's absolutely important that we do, in my opinion, sports hot take. Sport's a big part of my world, and so I have to have a sports hot take. I probably read more sports than I do Christian news, just confession. I'm constantly <laughs> reading sports. Twitter sports. Uh, yeah, anyway, so... Um, I'm gonna let you guys. Uh, no, I'm gonna give me. I'm gonna give my sports hot take. I don't think it's Jump fair. In there. Yeah, you go first. I, I think I, you, you guys it. go first, and I'm gonna go with my sports hot take uh, this morning. It's praying about my sports hot take. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> uh, there's some theological discussion, right? Praying about a sports hot take. Here you go. Sports hot, and the whole point of a hot take it needs to be a little ridiculous. Okay, so here's my ridiculous hot take. Matt Ryan will be an MVP candidate this year. And the Falcons will make a push in the NFC playoffs. And here's my reasoning. The parity in the NFL, it's tiny. I think an 0-16 team is not less talented than a 14-2 team. It's how they're coached. I'm convinced. There are no inferior athletes in the NFL. It's a matter of how you put them together, mash them up. And, and if you can get them moving in the same direction, all 11 guys on one side of the ball, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to play, you know, whatever. Uh, if you're an offense and all 11 guys are on point, it's hard for defense to stop that and vice versa. If you got 11 guys on defense doing their job, it's hard for an offense to, to do their deal. And so I think the Falcons are not untalented. I'm a homer, and so there's some hopeful, <laughs> uh, some wishful hoping in there. But at the same time, Matt Ryan takes too much heat, in my opinion, from people who don't give him enough credit. I think he's a great quarterback. Uh, I think he's a Hall of Fame quarterback, and I think uh, with the right coaching, and I think we have that guy, I think he can be an MVP candidate. don't think he'll win it, uh, but I think they'll make a push in the playoffs. My sports hot take. From the Lord in prayer. From the Lord in prayer. All right. And just because I said that, they're going to go O in 16. God's <laughs> going to teach me a lesson. Yeah, I'm thinking about your, um, your theory about coaching and um, whether or not Brady, Brady might even be considered a coach. Um, in, in some sense, you know, why is he successful regardless? Yep. Um, coaches don't change, but Brady does. But I think you could you probably could make an argument that he, he brings a level of coaching on the field that even a coach can't provide. Yeah, I agree. So that would support your, your theory on the value of coaching. I think Peyton Manning was that Same way. Same thing, yep. yep. I mean, I think Peyton Manning made everybody around him better. I think his uh, – oh, I can see his offensive coordinator's face on the sideline, white-haired older man – I think his job is to let him know what he saw. Peyton ran. Peyton did everything. Yeah. And it's different to be an on-field coach successfully than yes. to be like the head coach. That's right. Because the question was like, you know, why isn't he coaching somewhere in the NFL? But it's, I think it's a different deal. It is. Than being on the field. I don't know that he would be successful in yeah. the other role. I agree. Um, yeah. so, CEO is the role of an NFL head yeah. coach. And yeah. that's not the same as being a position coach. Different yeah. animal. Yeah. Absolutely. Big time. All right, Justin, what you got? Oh, you make me go before oh, Keith. Yeah. No, right. you, you just had. No, that was so my, my hot oh, take were... is basic. 
I got I, you. My future, I believe that the future of the NBA All-Star game is, I, I don't know how much longer it goes, but I think it's, um, I think it's in jeopardy mm. because of the way the game's played. Now, I didn't realize the scores were a lot. I went back and looked. The scores have been crazy for 10 years. Right. But um, it seems to me that the, the lack of defense in that game, it's, it's almost like it's hard to even call it a game. I don't know what you call it. But it's, it's for me. It's not any fun to watch. Offensive exposition. It's just you know, who's going to get to do something crazy this right. time down the court. Right. And so I don't know. My, my, that game will have to change at some point in the next ten years. I agree. Because of it's not a game anymore. I think you're right. Sorry, I jumped ahead. I was like so caught up in Peyton Manning. <laughs> oh, man, I was, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. I think that's interesting because I think the only All Star game that's worth watching is the MLB All Star game. Yeah. I don't think the Pro Bowl's worth watching. Right. And NBA basketball all star, not worth watching. So mm, that's right interesting. On. Yeah, it could be injury. You know, you're right. likely to get hurt in an NBA game. You're likely to get hurt in an NFL game. Mm-hmm. Um, less likely, probably, to get hurt in a baseball game if yep. everybody's giving it all they've got. Yep. That's a good point. That's good. All right. So I read something. I thought it was fascinating. I don't think the NFL is going to be wise enough to do it. But the Baltimore Ravens proposed a new um, overtime procedure. Ooh. So. Their coach's version of it was if you got two kids that are fighting, one of them cuts the cake and the other picks which piece is mm. theirs. So when you go into overtime, you flip the coin. Mitch's team gets the ball. Keith gets to pick what yard line they start on. Mm. Wow. And so if you choose offense, then Keith says you start on the 45-yard line. And or then the, you go. Or the, the – the one, <laughs> yeah. Surely, surely there'd be some kind of right. within these parameters. Oh, so it's not like just it's not wide like you start open, back like, at the one yard line, but well, because I'm like I don't want to win that coin toss. <laughs> yeah, well, but, <laughs> you would have to do the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah. So the next round, yeah. it'd be like okay, well, Keith's on offense, and now Mitch says they yeah. start on the. So you'd have to know your are you are you a better short term short field team or oh, your long field team? How's good. your defense play the best? And so it adds a checkers and chess dynamic. I that, think the easiest thing would be. Good. Give each team the ball on the twenty-five and right. play till somebody is ahead, but that right. seems too simplistic for the NFL. Right. Yeah. For some reason. It's like the uh, I like the college overtime rule. I love the way college does it. You just match score for score until somebody out, you know, outdoes the other, and that's and awesome. at some point you got to go for two. Yeah. Can't kick an extra point, so yeah, that makes sense to me. But it's pretty good. Well, it does make sense that a team that controls the line of scrimmage better. Yeah. Is is better off starting at the ten. Than mm-hmm. a team that needs some space, they're going to throw. You put them on the twenty-five, and mm. they're hamstrung a little bit because they don't have as much. That's good. I understand that 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 might make sense. That does make sense. That feels a little bit like MLB's rule last year for extra inning games. Get, put a guy at second, mm-hmm. and and uh, that's pretty awesome. Mm. So you start them out, guy on base. That's nice. I like that. By the way, <laughs> that was fun. That was a lot of fun. That's a weird dynamic. Like as a baseball player, that would be super weird. Right. Hey, just do what they do in softball and just go one pitch. Ooh. It's a ball or a strike. Nice. So you got it's a it, now it's an offensive game. You got to put it in there to let them hit it. Nice. And so so <laughs> like one one pitch softball tournaments are so a lot of fun. so I've never I didn't know that. So one ball is a walk too. Yeah, yeah. You you've oh, got to throw the ball in wow. there for somebody to hit it. That's awesome. Well, the pressure just ratchets up <laughs> hard right there, right? Yeah. That's fun, man. That's good. That's like a you know. The uh, arena football, you shorten the field, speed everything up, make it count more. This is awesome. 
We should do a sports podcast. That's what we should do. But this is right. not sports in the dirt. This is theology in the dirt. Well, we have a topic, really a situation we want to talk about this, this week that we want to try to wrestle through a little bit, and that is um, the issue with Bethany Christian Services. And, and if you're listening to this and you aren't sure about that, didn't know what had happened, Bethany Christian Services is an adoption agency, a foster care and adoption agency that is a, an evangelical Christian organization. Well, here recently... Um, they have decided and uh, they will have a change of policy. And the policy is they will allow LGBT parents to foster and adopt. And so just, just to read this statement um, from an article, Bethany Christian Services, the largest Christian adoption agency in the United States, has changed a longstanding policy and will now place children with LGBT parents for foster care and adoption across its operations in 32 states. The news was announced in a ministry-wide email, first reported by the New York Times. President Chris Pulaski told employees, Bethany remains steadfast in its Christian faith and that the new practices will allow the organization to further its mission to provide safe, loving, and stable homes to as many vulnerable children as possible. Now, Justin, so I, I want to say something go. before we even dive into the topic, right? To so that this doesn't get off the rails for anybody who listens to it, because the argument would be, well, they're just trying to be more inclusive, right? When in the past, Bethany has never looked at a family and said, "Hey, you don't meet our criteria for what we believe uh, based on our Christian convictions uh, that we should serve." So, too bad you can't do foster care. And instead, they've said, let me refer you to an agency that might be able to help you. Right. And so they've not worked with LGBT families before, but they've referred them to other agencies. Right. So they haven't just been, right. hey, go away. And, and to be fair to anybody listening to this, uh, personally and organizationally, we have a connection. Uh, without getting too deep in the weeds, organizationally to Bethany Christian Services and work we do in our city. Justin, you are and Alexa are Bethany Christian Services foster parents, right? Yep. And so, um, and so, we're not speaking with some kind of distance between us and an organization that we work with. So, so it matters. This discussion is important. In fact, it's a discussion we have to have at the organizational level of how does this affect how we work and, and what we do. I find interesting in that statement that I read. I actually. I almost I have to be very careful because I can get really passionate real quickly here and kind of get myself off the rails and y'all might need to rein me in. But I, I can't help but notice the disconnect between the idea stated by the president, Chris Pulaski, which said Bethany remains steadfast in its Christian faith. But the new practices allowed them to provide safe, loving, stable homes to as many vulnerable children as possible. My my problem there is this idea that being steadfast in the Christian faith equals saying that if I place a child in an LGBT family, that it is stable and safe. Yeah. That, that to me, that's a large assumption. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. By, by that being a large assumption, what I mean is they're assuming they're physically safe. My question becomes, what about the psychological and emotional impact that may have on a child? 
And I'm sure somebody who may disagree with us may listen to this and go, well, how dare you say that that's not psychologically safe? And I would go, well, depending on the biological sex of the child placed with this couple, there might be questions that now add a level of trauma to a trauma that's already there. When you remove a kid from a home, we know because we work in this world, there is a trauma. There's a trauma. That's the reason they're being removed. The removal is traumatic. And let's say they came from a home, no matter how traumatic it is, where at least there wasn't LGBT. Now they have other questions. What about two mommies? What about two daddies? And so what I would argue is to call Christian faith equal to merely providing a physically safe environment is a truncated understanding of Christianity. What I would say is there's a psychological and emotional component that maybe they're not considering. Well, the, the clear implication is that you can be Christian and you can um, have a view of <clears throat> same-sex relationships that are biblical, that you believe the Bible supports same-sex relationships. And so there are plenty of people who, are, who could listen to this that would say, well, I don't, I don't understand the tension. I'm Christian, and I'm involved in a, I'm married to someone of the same sex. What, what are you trying to say? Well, and it's not just, a, we're not talking about a few people. Right. We're talking about an entire denomination. We're talking about, really, honestly, the, 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 the slide of, of most Christianity that's not in what would be considered the majority world. Right. So I think, I think most of the minority world Christianity is leaning toward embracing that. And so what happened in 2007, um, they removed from their, essentially from their documents that marriage was between a man and a woman. That happened mm-hmm. back then. You might, in, in Bethany Christian Bethany services. Christian right. services. So right. they, they sort of tipped their hat a little bit about where they were headed with this, um, and they didn't, um, so what they did, they basically removed any statement about what they felt that should look like. What human sexuality right. like. They didn't say that they were going to embrace same-sex relationships. They just took out that marriage between a man and a woman. And so my argument would be that in, in 07, they began to let us know kind of where they were going to be on this issue. Right. And um, the only reason they didn't, I think it was Philadelphia, Michigan, and, and Massachusetts they had already sort of caved to the pressure because in, in Michigan there was a, the court case came up that they, um, because they took public funding, they weren't going to be able to continue to work in Michigan as an, as an adoption agency. Right. And Michigan pushed them on that, and they said, well, okay, then we'll quit doing that. And Michigan, and, and, and you know, Justin, you, you mentioned earlier that there might – they they could possibly win a case in Philadelphia um, that it will be sort of be a, a moot case for them now at the Supreme Court at US the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court. Level. yeah right because they could actually have defended their right to be a Christian nonprofit and maintain their distinction as a Christian nonprofit even though they are receiving some manner of federal assistance because they are providing a service that benefits a federal and state system um, and, and and therein lies the rub. Is, is money versus a sense of uh, identity mm-hmm. and, and, and what are we willing to, to accept? Um, what, I find, uh, what I find absolutely horrifying here is, is well, there's a hundred things I find horrifying here. One of the things I find horrifying here is the, 
the culture that exists that says there's no room for distinction, disagreement, and being able to work toward the same mission. Mm-hmm. Let me just be very clear here. We do work with, in our organization, people from the LGBT world. They, they are Division of Family and Children's Services foster parents. Mm-hmm. That's a state organization. And so they foster and adopt. They may come to our building for services, and we're glad to work with anybody. So let's be clear. Working with people is not the same thing as agreeing with their concept of who, they're, who they are and what their identity is. Mm-hmm. And what I find disturbing here is, is this sense of I need to cave on my identity and minimize my standards in order to be able to work with anyone. What I would be, I think you said it earlier, what they've done in the past is very simply say, we can't work with you in this situation, but we will help you find an organization you can work with. Yep. And, and we're not making a value statement about who you are and who you think you are. This is just who we are as an organization. We want to help you get in a place that you can work. And to me, that's how you maintain your convictions and work in the public square, right? Yeah. You maintain your convictions as a Christian organization, right? and you work in a pluralistic society where you're becoming the minority because you, you don't necessarily reject people, but you also, this is our conviction, this is who we're going to be, and this is who right. we're going to serve. Right. Um, and I think from a big 30,000-foot view, that's the issue that is so concerning Right. is they're now taking the stance by saying they're not going to take a stance, which we all know is taking a stance, right? Um, of saying, well, we can't maintain our Christian convictions, right? And serve, we have to change our convictions, right? And and that that to me, and the and if they didn't do that, they would find themselves uh, quickly on the decline, and I'm unable to function as an organization ever again. Yeah, I th- I would argue that they're, I don't I don't feel like they've had to cave on their convictions. I feel like this pressure has just revealed their convictions. Mm, I think that's fair. I think I think what where those guys are in their leadership is that they're they're okay with Christian I mean they're okay with same sex relationships. And so now it, it's finally gotten to the point where they had to essentially say so. Mm. Because you wouldn't have, you never would have taken that out of your documents back in 07 if you if that was a conviction of yours. I don't think um, well, why not? Why not fight all the way to the Supreme Court yeah. and say we have a right to hold a conviction and not be shut down for it? Mm. Now that may change our funding structure, and we're willing to do that. But we believe this, and to have that taken away from us, number one, let, let's pretend we're not Christians. Let's just pretend we're Americans. We have a constitutional right to exist and have an idea and a thought. Mm-hmm. And to force me to shut down, no, we're not going to do that. The, the, the basis of a free society is you can think freely, you can think freely, I can think freely. And I'm not coerced. You, you, and there's a difference between coercion and, um, and, 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 and having myself persuaded, right? Mm-hmm. And you coerce when you start pulling funding or threatening mm-hmm. other sanctions against somebody who thinks differently mm-hmm. and 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 I, I feel as though they caved no I mean, let me let me back up I think you said how did you say it Keith they didn't cave it just revealed what they believe but well, I think it revealed that you know the ends justify the means 
right? So it, in in the progressive, what we would call progressive liberal uh, denominations or theological thought, the end, uh, in this case of caring for children and placing children, vulnerable children in a safe environment, is a good end that we would all hope to strive for as right. believers. But they're now taking the position that that end justifies whatever means it takes to get there. Even if we have to toss out what used to be some of our, quote, convictions. Right. Um, In this article, uh, Robin Fretwell Wilson, a legal expert and an adoptee, applauded the move as an example of a Christian organization finding a way forward in the culture wars I was pleased to see them talk about this as an all hands, uh, an issue of all hands on deck. Uh, who dire- and, and Wilson directs the University of Illinois Institute of Government and Public Affairs and is known for her role in advocating for fairness for all legislation to safeguard religious liberty. We need Bethany and all of Bethany's of the world to continue their work. They have uh, recentered on their mission on helping children, and they found in their theology a way to do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Spinning, head spinning, losing my mind. Several things that, that, that bother me there. The idea of advocating for fairness for all legislation to safeguard religious liberty while saying that this is an appropriate move to um, acquiesce to a movement. It, it, those two statements don't belong together. If I'm going to advocate for religious liberty for all, then I should say Bethany has a right to make a case that they can be a Christian nonprofit who can receive state and federal funding while providing a necessary service that takes the burden off of the state. And they can believe what they want to believe as long as they're not breaking the law. That, that to me, is what that sentence should say, right? So here's the thing. Right. So breaking the law is an important part of that because... The Equality Act is going to make discrimination based on gender and um, sexual preference equivalent to race, age, um, gender. Yeah. And so um, we're, we're headed down the path where it's essentially like saying we don't work with black families. That's right. To say that we don't work with same-sex couples. That's what the Equality Act will do. Yep. Now, mm-hmm. you and I don't know a legitimate... Um, Christian peer Christian agency that would ever say we don't work with black people right or we don't work with people of color or we don't work with white folks I mean it's it's not a it's, that's ridiculous right exactly yet we're arguing that you should be able to do that based on sexual preference where the Equality Act is saying well no that's just as bad right I don't know if you guys remember uh, Justin I don't know if you were around 10 years ago uh, Keith, you remember we had Bodie. I had I, I had Bodie Balkum come in and speak to our school, yeah. and we had a thing. I required my students to go. Yeah. They got credit for attending this this uh, uh, this lecture, uh, this series of of sermons at Balkum. And regardless of what you think of Bodie Balkum, regardless of how you see how he views CRT or other things, there's no doubting the man's scholarship. Mm-hmm. He is a class A scholar. He said ten years ago that this issue was going to be an issue. In fact, he said he had written a book. You remember him talking about the title and nobody would publish it, and his title was Gay is the New Black, where mm. the argument now is the, L, 
that he he said ten years ago the LGBT movement would turn into equating race with sexual orientation, and that it would become a civil rights issue where they're arguing about the equation of race and sexual orientation or or, or identity, such that it becomes a legal issue of recognizing that as an actual issue of legal identity. Now, somebody listening to this may go, well, geez, what's wrong with that? And, and, and we're going, well, there's, there's quite a lot wrong with that. To, to begin to argue that, and, and here's the crux of the issue, my choice, because let's face it, we think and believe that that is an issue of choice. You choose to do that. You choose to identify as that, as opposed to not choosing your race. You don't get to choose your race. But I can choose when I'm born and grow up how I want to act. I may have a hundred factors coming at me and we can dive into those factors and figure out what those factors are that influence my soul, whether it's hurt, whatever it happens to be. But you can make decisions about what you're going to do and who you're going to be. That's, that's not a race issue, right? And so to make this now a legal issue of the choices that I make um, about my identity becoming a legal right is bothersome. You know that that issue came up in when uh, Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed, and she she sort of made some sort of I can't remember the exact comment, but she alluded to the fact that sexual preference was a was a preference. Yeah, and man, she got hammered by the senator from Hawaii, who said, you know, how dare you say this was a this is a preference? This is not a choice that people make, and that's really the the prevailing notion in much of the world that would sort of press back against us is that. My sexual, my sexuality is just, is, is as, it's, um, it's not a choice just like race isn't a choice. They would completely disagree with that. Right. From a, from my perspective in the scriptures, I think it's most definitely a choice, but that's not something that you just throw out there in the public square and people go, oh yeah, okay, I got you. No, it's, they, they, they feel like you can have your religious liberty as long as you're not doing harm to America, and the, to the notion that we have said that that's a choice, it's harmful. Therefore, you lose your you lose your ability to be free to do that. Like religious liberty has always been liberty to the point that it's not damaging someone. Right. I'm not free to kill people. Right. We don't get to do human sacrifice. Right. That's what religious right. liberty means. Right. And so religious religious liberty essentially means you're free to do the things that our country as a whole is okay with. Yeah. The minute that our faith begins to believe something that they would view as harmful, our liberties, well, it's always been that way. Liberty yeah. has always, religious liberty has always suffered to what's safe for right. the people. Right. It's just, this is the first time that something that we sort of hang on to, right. that the people are beginning to say, right. that's unsafe. That, that kind of thinking is unsafe. Right. Mm. Well, if, Here's the here's the uh, almighty deified word of the day, and it's science. Follow the science. It, it, as long as you say the word science, we all supposed to sit down and shut up because it's the incontrovertible fact, right? Well, the truth of the matter is that X and Y chromosome is what it is, what it is, what it is, what it is. That's the science. That's the fact. And what's happening in this argument is people are now taking science and turning it into a philosophy and calling it science. Mm -hmm. and, and that's bad science. But nobody's screaming, hey, that's not actual science. That's philosophy. They're just 
saying it because it's to prevailing wind of the day, right? And, and, and now we want to make laws that are reflective of really bad scholarship. I mean, again, we could pretend, we could have this discussion and pretend like there's no God, we're just atheists. Or we're whatever, let's pick yeah. something other than Christians. And if we're just going to observe the order around us, there is no place on earth that if we're making sense, this makes sense. Because well, the science is clear. Yeah, well, Ryan Anderson wrote the book, When Harry Became Sally, I think is the name of the book, that right. Amazon just, they won't, it's off. Right. They you can't sell that book. They completely said right. we're not, that's essentially hateful. And what he does is he gets into the science. He's like, there is a lack of science in, in this area of gender studies where, you know, just gender, fluidi- gender fluidity is not based in scientific fact. There are theories and there are philosophies and they're working through it. It's too new to even say right. that there's science for it. Right. He tried to work through that and get thinking people to look at the evidence. He's out right. on Amazon. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's out. Well, if, 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 if the science of male and female is as ironclad as the X and Y chromosome and, and we start normalizing that that doesn't count, what kind of emotional, psychological damage are we doing on people who have an X and Y chromosome who aren't feeling the way these other people are feeling? That begin, that's confusion. And, and the idea that they can call Christian being just physically stable, you're out of an abusive situation, which they ought to be. Please do not misunderstand people hearing this. I, I'm in that world. My youngest was taken out of that world. I'm for the physical safety of any kid being harmed, abused in any fashion, mistreated, neglected. They should be put in a safe place. But the idea that physical safety is the only idea of safety to me is offensive because safety is also psychological and emotional. Mm -hmm. And the idea that now you can look at the science and pretend it doesn't count and that it doesn't have an effect on a child when, when they're seeing, feeling the atmosphere and the physical manifestation of something that seems to go against how they are actually put together, that's not safe. Mm. But yet they're calling that Christian, and that that bothers me. Mm. That's disturbing. Yep. And and I think and I think it's important for people to understand if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, we're not hating on anybody. Like I I love absolutely everybody. I really do. I, now, I struggle loving some people more than others. And just to be <laughs> truthful, I, can, I struggle loving a lot of Christians more than I love, love people who aren't Christians because Christians have a tendency to do me more harm than non-Christians do. Mm-hmm. So I have some really good relationships with people who aren't Christians, uh, including people who are in the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. So it's not saying folks in that world aren't loved. What it is saying is that we disagree on something fundamental to what they call or what they say their identity is and what I say their identity is. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we have to now push our distinctives down is, is not freedom. It's, in fact, coercion. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, well and that's not good. It's not good for public debate. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. All right, we're back. Thank you guys for listening to Theology in the Dirt. We're wrestling through some difficult things today. We're talking about Bethany Christian Services and their... Uh, decision to include the LGBT community as part of their organization as far as placing kids in foster care and adoption. I love how Russell Moore responded to this. Russell Moore wrote Adopted for Life. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He said the need for great Christian or great 
the need is great. Let me read. I'm struggling to read and put letters together. The need is great for distinctively Christian adoption and foster care services, including that children need both mothers and fathers. Moreover, this move will harm already existing efforts to enable faith-based orphan care ministries to serve the vulnerable without capitulating on core Christian convictions. He said it absolutely perfectly. I feel like this set a standard now for what's to come. In order to survive, if you're a Christian nonprofit, you're going to have to not fight. You're going to have to give in to the culture war. And I think what Bethany did was just lay down and quit. And they provided a framework for others who may not be as staunch in their convictions as others to just say, well, we can still be Christian and push down what the Bible teaches about human identity. Well, it sets up smaller nonprofits who will be looked at in the future and go, well, it obviously wasn't really a good Christian conviction because Bethany Christian Services said it wasn't. They abandoned it after 77 years, so it really wasn't that distinctive to what they're believing. So how can you now say that it is? And to me, that's a great disservice to um, other nonprofits that would have been similarly aligned before some of these changes. Right. It puts a lot of pressure on those that don't have the national scope that Bethany has. Right. I feel as though um, there's going to be a point that a Christian nonprofit is going to have to be willing to fight and lose in order to put a, a line in the sand on this one. This is one of those that that, that is probably worth maybe losing a job over. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately buried up in this for us is going to be issues of the Hyde Amendment. Right? Because... because Buried up in all of this is the use of Christian funds for, for purposes such as abortion and, and all of those. It's almost subsequent dominoes that are going to fall mm-hmm. as, we, as, as we deal with, okay, well, there's not enough. Because I'm, I'm, I firmly believe issues of, uh, of the abortion industry are tied to availability of good services to provide proper fostering and adoption for children. Mm-hmm. And when we begin to shut down organizations who are providing a service that sometimes the federal government can't provide. We're now increasing the number of kids who likely are going to be aborted because there's no other option for mamas. Mm. And, 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 and I, I think for, for a certain political bent, they don't really care. That's not such a big deal, but for us that matters. And so for organizations to capitulate like this, is huge. And for somebody to draw a line in the sand and go, this is worth fighting for is probably going to be necessary. Well, you know, because this is theology in the dirt, it's probably worth maybe at a, on, in a different podcast. There, there are folks out there in the Christian community building like exegetical arguments for same-sex relationships right. from the scriptures. They're they're using Hebrew, they're using Greek, they're looking at um, they're looking at first-century um, you know marriage norms and different things like that to to build a very uh, structured case for why the church has gotten this wrong for centuries. Right. And so the argument is there for maybe even one of my children to read an article that says, you know, my parents acted like this was a, sh- a closed, open and closed case. Like it's clear in the Bible that this is wrong. Yet now I'm reading something from a person who really understands the languages. They understand the history. They're saying it's okay. So, um, because, I mean, a lot of the folks I talk to are like, well, of course it's wrong 
to, right. to same-sex marriage is clear in the Bible. You can't believe the Bible and that. Well, there are there are a whole bunch of people out there who are disagreeing with that. Right. They they go to church faithfully every Sunday. They're involved in worship bands. They and they're good with same-sex relationships. They're doing them in their church, and so um, I don't want to assume that everybody's just sort of going, oh, well, yeah, if you just read your Bible, the plain English says this. That's why it's so important to me for believers to understand what a good biblical hermeneutic looks like. Yeah. Like how you read your Bible is super important because at one point it was like, we just need people to understand that the Bible is the Word of God. Now it's to the place where, okay, we got to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and we have to believe there's a certain way you need to read it. Because the, the, the truth is, now folks are reading the Bible, believing all sorts of strange things about how you can read the Bible. Right. Like it can mean something different. My background is from one area. Your background is from another area. And Justin, yours is different too. We can all, because of our backgrounds, come to different conclusions about what the text means. Yep. Which means the text doesn't mean anything in particular. That's right. That's right. That is, that's bad. It's very bad. When we come to the root of, of so many people, to get all worldviewy here for a second, the, when you have the advent of uh, the Enlightenment mm-hmm. and the, the introduction of the idea that, that we are bearers of meaning, there's not an objective truth, there's not a reality out there to be discovered, but in, in fact, truth is, is really more subjective mm-hmm. and we're the bearers of that subjectivity. It's called de- literary deconstruction, right? So you come to something and you bring the meaning to it, which is why we ask stupid questions like, what does that mean to you? As if it can mean something to you and something to you and something to me. That's one of the most stupid questions in the history of the earth because it assumes that a thing can mean multiple things. Yeah, the, the, the person who wrote that didn't have a clear intent. Absolutely. For what they meant. Yeah, it, it assumes that there is absolutely nothing there to be mined from the author's intent. And if we're Christians and we're coming to the Bible, we've got to assume not only did the author mean something, the Holy Spirit meant something in that author, in that time and place. And, and, and we want to dumb down Christianity and make it not hard. And, and I don't want to pull the, put an unnecessary barrier out there for anybody. So I don't want people to misunderstand that. So we're not trying to make an, an, a falsely high entry point, what we are trying to say is sometimes things aren't as easy as one, two, three. Mm-hmm. There's a little work to do to get behind an author's intent. And when for centuries now, well, a couple hundred years, we haven't been training people how to read well, that just looks hard. When in fact, it's not really that hard. It's just an issue of good reading skill. It's asking the right questions, right? If I try to, Primitive Pete, did you guys ever watch shop videos? Uh, I had In middle school, we had shop. And Mr. Smith made us watch Primitive Pete videos. They're little cartoons. And before we, he let us loose with bandsaws and, and, and art welders <laughs> and, and all kinds of stuff. And Primitive Pete always used the wrong tool. And so he was a little caveman. He had on a little Fred Flintstone outfit. And he would try to use a hammer or a, a, a screwdriver for a chisel. And he'd end up hurting himself. And the whole point is you have to use the right tool. When we come to the Bible, we have to use the right tools. And some of that's the right kind of questions. But if you don't know the right question to ask, and you're asking the wrong question, you're going to get a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And so we come at the Bible like primitive Pete's thinking we can, it's this magical book. And if I just read that verse the right way and it means something to me, I've got this magical incantation and things are going to magically happen for me. That's witchcraft, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When we come and realize, no, the text says something and it means something. And we read it the way it says it should be read, 
there's no other place for us to go other than say God had an intent and created order. He made man and woman in his image. And man and woman is the framework and order Mm -hmm. by which human flourishing takes place. Mm. It starts there. But we have to come with the right questions. Because I think what people do is they want to, it's smoke and mirrors, come with the language. We've got Hebrew, we've got Greek, and we've got this stuff, and, and this means this. And over here, the next thing you know, you're not even looking at the right question. You're somewhere off in left field, you know, looking at a blade of grass and going, oh, that's the meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't come to the text with the, the desire to actually see what it means. Right. Maybe, maybe I'm off. Right? I read a lot of books. You guys read a lot of books, articles. Yeah. We listen to a lot of podcasts. We learn a lot of things. And we try to approach those things, I hope, with the, okay, teach me something. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I'm open to being wrong. So what do I need to know? Right? right. And especially when we come to the Bible, what do I need to know that's true? Okay, this book is true. What do I need to know where I'm off? Right. And instead we come to it with this, okay, this is my experience. This is the feeling I have. So I've got to prove that to be true. Right. Rather than saying what's true, and then I've got to get my life in order around that. Right. Yeah, that's good. You should begin to order your life around what God says is true, right? But you're right, Keith, that all over, all over, particularly Western European and, and, and American civilization, there are scholars calling themselves Christians with smoke and mirrors, mm-hmm. making biblical arguments about the normalization of same-sex relationships. And, and I think that, that that is probably a worthy discussion to dive into some of the nuance of the arguments they make yeah. and, and why they're false. Because, I mean, folks are making good faith. They, they believe it. I mean, it's not right. like they're trying to do something sinister. They, they really have, they've been instructed. They have certain inclinations. And because of that, they, certain things we all, we all want to believe certain things because it's just easier. Yeah. And so when you've got somebody laying out a case that helps you believe that, then it's, you're all in on it. Right. So it's, it's not like it, I mean, Justin, you, you did a great job describing, we, we're going to come with some bias. Mm. It's impossible to not come with bias, but you come with bias, recognizing that there is a bias, probably one that you don't even know about. So you just, you intentionally have to work at what, what is true here and what are my biases? How can I do my best to put those away? Even though I never can completely come to the scripture and just look at the arguments. Yeah. And, you know, th- these guys are saying from this perspective that we can overlook this English. And, and, and at the end of the day, you come to a conclusion. It's the only conclusion. For me, it's clear to me that same-sex relationships are out of bounds when it comes to a biblical worldview. Yeah. That's, offen- that's awfully offensive and hurt, hurtful right. to people. It's the, but it's like all I can say is it's the honest conclusion that I've, I've come to, just like they have come to a conclusion, right? Right. Doesn't mean I, I don't like them or nothing like that. But I think at the end of the day, we have to go, what's going to lead to human flourishing? Well, God's word is going to lead to human flourishing. And my position on this is that when you place a child into a home in a same, in a same-sex relationship marriage, it is not going to lead to human flourishing. Right. It might this year. It might even in five years seem that way. But long-term, because I trust the scriptures, it's going to be bad. And at the end of the, it's not going to be a loving thing. Yeah, it's not going to be helpful. Yep. Um, well, at, at at Bethany Christian Services, they're um, at the near the bottom of their webpage. They basically say, "Look, our 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 goal is to love God and to love people." And I'm sure they're convinced that when they say love people, 
putting kids, getting kids out of a foster care situation into a home with loving same-sex parents is, is a loving thing to do. And it, it would appear loving if you're secular. Mm-hmm. But if you're reading the Bible the way we read it, we say, no, that's not loving. Right. It's yeah. not going to be helpful. Right. It's not going to be helpful at all. This, this, to me, highlights the vital nature of narrative. We, we, we use regularly around here the language of meta-narrative. Meta-narrative being a, a large story that gives meaning to all the sub-stories. The world's full of meta-narratives. And, and, um, and, and unfortunately, so much of our world is controlled by a meta-narrative that is not the meta-narrative of the Bible. There's a, a book that really highlights this. I, I, it, for some reason, this book has continues to come up in conversations, even out, outside of theology in the dirt, because of this issue. Um, and it's called After the Ball by Kirk and Madsen. I think it was written in 85, 1985, 84, 85-ish. Uh, I have it on my shelf over there. Um, it's a book by, written by a Harvard-Princeton sociologist on this very issue. And what they saw coming was this sociological storm and what they believed is that 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 these relationships are normative but in order to win the day in a culture that didn't see them as normative there had to be a narrative shift and they talk about you got to desensitize jam and convert and those are the three strategies desensitize jam and convert desensitize you got to flood using media you got to flood the airwaves with this as normative that's how you desensitize. You get it in front of people. You jam. You get up in their face with it. You got to push it in their face. And then the conversion happens. And people begin to see it as normative. And, and the unfortunate thing about that book, the last little bit of the book in the appendix is all about behaviors that have to stay in the dark in order for this to become normative. And if you follow from the mid-80s up to present, you see desensitize, jam, and convert. Who's the funniest person on the sitcom? We know who that is, Right. You put it in people's faces, constantly hit them. We saw, gosh, we we watched, uh, we were watching something the other day, and there was a, a drug commercial. You know how the commercials come on, and it's and they real quickly say, if you take this, you know, you got to watch out, your heart may explode, but go see a doctor, and they'll help you get out. And you saw all this stuff. Well, one of the little statements on this, and it was it was it was for sexually transmitted disease, uh, said, uh, if you were assigned a gender at birth see your doctor and ask about this. And I thought, assigned a gender. Whoa, time out. That's an example of jam. Put it in your face. Mm-hmm. Just that language. And how many people heard that and said, oh, that's not right. Some people probably heard that. Well, well yeah, they said it was a girl. It's a girl, right? And, and you're going, wait a second, and that's jamming. And then the next thing you know, you've got people who bought the narrative that sees this as normative. And when you come to the scriptures with a narrative that's not the Bible's narrative, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Mm-hmm. We can point to people all through history who've used the Bible with a false meta narrative and made it say whatever they wanted to say. Parse the verbs, case the nouns, yeah, yeah. and used it as a, as a tool to absolutely pillage human history. Yeah. Man, there, there's a whole group of people that are listening to our podcast. They're incensed right now because <laughs> this is why. Right. Because they're saying, you guys are saying that we should put children in homes where they're going to be told that they're a boy because they have a penis. Yep. That is awful to do to a child when, it's, when that child doesn't even know yet what gender they are. Right. They would, they would literally consider that child abuse. Yeah, they would. 
Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, and um, and they, I mean, they, we're sitting over here incensed that that we believe it won't lead to human flourishing for a child to go into a same sex home. Right. They're on the other side, just as convinced that the the nonsense that we're teaching them as far as gender and and sexuality is going to damage them. They want us to cease and desist. As a society, we've got to get rid of these people. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's where the Equality doing. Act is headed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we are, and I, you know, the, the religious hot take is it ain't, it's not going to get much better in the no. next five, ten years. No, it's not going right. away. So my question for us in our last time is um, let's get into the dirt. What do, what, do, what do I as a foster parent do about it? Right. What do we as pastors and church leaders yeah. do about it. And what, what do we, you, right. Mitch, as a board member of a nonprofit in town that right. partners with Bethany, yeah. founder, do about founder it. of that organization. <laughs> we, we founded that organization, right? And that are nonprofit. there differences right. for those different layers yeah. of partnership? And what does that look like? Several things come to mind. I think there's a place for hyperbole. I'm very careful, particularly if you insert sarcasm into hyperbole, I think you have to be very careful with that, particularly when you're trying to lead people who are diverse in backgrounds. We share, uh, by and large, theologically, we're all on the same page. Then when you get at the larger expanse of our organization, we're, you know, we're, we're not. There are layers that don't demand us to be on the same doctrinal statement. Um, but when you're dealing with all the people who are covenantally moving together in the same direction, you have to be careful about your sarcasm and your hyperbole. But when you get on some of those outer layers, I, th- I think there is, when you look at the ridiculous nature of some of the narrative, you have to almost match it. And again, I want to be very careful here because there are people who do that in the Christian world and they do that to other Christians. And that makes me angry. And I feel like it's abusive. But when you're dealing with um, ridiculousness, sometimes in order for ridiculousness to be seen as ridiculousness, you kind of have to match it a little bit. And, and one of the things I think we have to do is speak some of the ridiculousness back at it. And, and, and here's an example that I, I've, I haven't used this, never used this in our church, but in conversations and people would ask me, well, what do you say about this issue? And how is this normative? And I say, well, I'm just going to pretend I'm an atheist, all right? Because this is a good one. This is the easy one. I'm going to pretend like I'm Darwin's best friend. And I believe in survival of the fittest. And the natural selection is choosing species to get rid of that are weaker. Right, because that's kind of the baseline of Darwin's natural selection, right? And you could even take that and how Marx and even politically Marx and communism took biological evolution and adopted as a political and sociological worldview to to justify getting rid of the masses that were weaker than them. That's how you bring in the utopia, right? You got to get into the whole you know communism, but you get this whole di- idea of the dialectic, right? You thesis antithesis, and what wins out is the the dominant force. So you got to create a war and you create a war and the weak lose. And next thing you know, you've ushered in utopia, right? That's the political and sociological adaptation of Darwin's view. But let's say biologically, I believe Darwin. Well, if I'm a person who is in that community that believes same-sex attraction is absolutely normative, I have to be careful about my religious view. I have to find some religious view that is going to push back against Darwinian evolution and natural selection because what I've just said, if I adopt any of that worldview, is that I've been chosen for extinction because I've chosen a desire that will not allow me to replicate my kind. Mm. 
And, and, and if you want to go down that road, we can go down that road. And that's some of the ridiculousness sometimes we need to match that with, I think. So sometimes there's a place in a podcast like this where we can say, hey, you want to be ridiculous? Let's give you a ridiculous scenario, right? Mm. Well, we're not Darwinists. We don't believe that. We believe there's a deeper problem mm. that can be repaired mm. and fixed and, and that flourishing can take place. There's hope there. You don't see it's hope. You see this as normative. We see this as destructive, but we see that this is redeemed mm. and can be redeemed. Mm. And there's hope there. So you match it with a little ridiculousness to maybe mm. get people to see, and then you can inject a little, little sight there. Um, I think then at that point, I had to burp. Sorry. <laughs> it was trying to hold. There was not emotion welling up. The pause was not for effect. It was like I was actually about to burp into the microphone. So I had to back up. I think as an organization, we have to recognize um, there's a difference between serving people and calling something normative. Our organization does not provide services. It provides a framework for other organizations to come and provide services. And that, for us, allows us to be able to work with everybody while never diminishing our values. And at the same time, I think it provides a framework for, for us to model to Bethany because they're in our building. We're not backing down on what we believe. You may do that, and you may be providing these services, and people who come in this building, they're not going to get that from us. Mm. It's, it's actually emblazoned on the wall. And when we say in Jesus' name that we're doing this in Christ's name, what we mean is the Jesus who created male and female in his image as a normative framework for human flourishing. That's where we're going to operate. If you come in this building and you need services, we're going to provide them. But we're going to provide them as people who believe that this is human flourishing, not that. It's good. And that's where I'm at. Yeah, me too. I, I think it, it's important to try to do the best that you can to help someone who disagrees with you see that you do care about them. It's hard to it's hard to say to somebody, look, I reject everything that makes you who you are, but I still love you. And as a as a conservative evangelical Christian, that's really not what I'm saying. I'm not mm -hmm. saying I mean that's what they're hearing. Right. But what I'm trying to say is no, I I would say that's not who you are. I would say who you are is a person I can fully embrace. It's the person God created you to be. But yet you have the same struggles that I've got we all have struggles that we're that we're we're prone to lean into but because that that's really because of a fallen world though there are things that i also long for that i have to reject and i have to go and go okay is this consistent with a biblical view of the world no okay well i got to fight that that's and so good. that's the way you i would have to present that to them hopefully they'll accept it a lot of those guys wouldn't accept it they would say well man that's hate but I mean, you can, you can only believe what you believe, right? Right. So you lean in, you love folks, you try to help them, you do everything that you can do to, to, um, to meet their needs. One of the primary things would be to tell them about Jesus and tell them that they're lost yeah. and that without Christ, there's no hope in the world and that one day a judgment is coming and they're going to have to stand before God and answer for what he said was right and righteous and true. And they're not going to be able to look behind them and point at anyone else and say, yeah, but he said, the Lord is going to hold us all accountable for what we believed and what we did with the teachings he gave us in the scriptures. You love them. You're honest with them. You, just like Paul, Paul dealt with, if Paul was going to cave, it would have, to me, it would have been in Athens where those people were as secular as it gets. And Paul's like, look, I, I see all these idols. 
God really isn't about idols made with hands. That would have been offensive to those people. And finally he said, and he requires now, like the time for foolishness is gone. Yeah. And now he requires everybody to repent. Yeah. And that, 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 it started getting sideways at that point. But he didn't fail to do that. That's right. So he you got have, there. Good. He got there. And yeah. he, he didn't wait until he had a longstanding relationship with these people. He, he went early with the gospel. He loved them. The most loving thing he ever did to them was to share with them the gospel. And, and man, you just do the best you can and know that the Holy Spirit is the only one that can call someone to see my heart. And But what I can never do is look down on someone because they're struggling with a worldview that's different from mine. or or It's, it's a legitimate struggle. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, it it's is. It's real. It is real. Right? So Absolutely. I had a, a young man I was working with. It's been 15 years ago who, who was caught in this world. And I love this kid. He's a grown man now. Um, kind of a friend. And, and, and we had years and continue to have some ongoing dialogue about this issue. And one of the things I began to be aware of then, and I'm super more aware of it now, is some of our, we need to do a little self-critique. And some of that is a, a, our hyper-masculine culture. The hyper-masculinity of Western evangelical conservative Christianity is devastating to men who don't identify with that level of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And when I say level, that's almost betraying of some superior. So even my language almost is wrong, mm-hmm. but that this version of masculinity is more manly than this version of masculinity. Uh, someone who maybe is more artistic and, and 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 loves the arts versus shooting and killing meat and cooking it in the open field, and that, like one is more masculine than the other. We've sold the gun-toting, animal-killing, you know, sports playing. That's man, but the kid who's good in the band, not the man. Mm-hmm. Whether we say that with our words, sometimes we betray that by what we value. Mm. And, 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 and as Christians, we have to be careful that we don't say one is more masculine than the other, but we recognize the masculinity in all of these things, that God is neither male nor female. He created man in his image, and in doing so, he did male and female. And so in the very beautiful nature of God, all of that is displayed. And so... When men particularly who wrestle with their identity because they don't see themselves being that level of masculinity and then begin to say, well, that must mean I am, mm-hmm. we need to do some repenting. Mm-hmm. That's on us. That's not on them. That's our fault mm-hmm. because we've said this is man, this is not. And so I think some self-reflections in order mm-hmm. that, that, we, that we celebrate masculinity in all of the beautiful ways God made. I mean, David is a perfect example. Yeah. David could repent of his sin. He was instrumental. He was artistic. He wrote the Psalms, and he was a man of war. And so somehow in David, we get a picture of Jesus. He's all those beautiful things. And I think when we can celebrate all of that, we we, we may have half the battle won, Hmm. but we've got a ways to go. All right, Justin, we've gone almost to our limit. We'll start with you for the last word, and then we'll wrap up. This is a tough one for me because I am a foster parent through Bethany Christian Services. Um, so, yeah, it's a tough one to wrestle through. Um, what is my my responsibility going forward as a foster parent um, through this organization? Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. I'm not going to go there right now because I haven't settled in my mind what to do today. Right. But... Um, it causes some concern. 
Right. Some real concern because there are other organizations to go through or to go straight through DFACs. Right. So it's not like to be a foster parent, I've got to go through Bethany Christian Services. Right. Um, I think it's sad that an organization as prominent as Bethany Christian Services would, I don't want to use the word abandon because they abandoned their conviction a long time ago, but they abandoned their conviction um, as they would say for the sake of their mission. Right. And I think that's a tragic way to try to move forward as an organization. I mean, look at the Boy Scouts. Right. It is not what it used to be. And there were problems with what it used to be, but, but the organization basically is gone because they gave up everything they thought to be true. Right. It's good. Keith. Yeah, I think we just need to really examine what it is that we believe because the pressure is going to be on. So we're going to be like Bethany Christian Services and we're going to be exposed because of difficult decisions. We're going to what we really believe is going to be exposed. Right. So it's it's best to work through that now, you know, it's best yeah. to work through those things now. What where are you on issues related to marriage? Where are you on issues related to sexual preference and gender and that kind of thing? As a person who lives in the in the business world, you know, this is not new to us. We haven't been protected because of relig- religious liberties. Right. We've had to sort of operate in, in the, the sphere outside of religious liberty for a while. So when I'm hiring and, and having conversations with people about what I think is going to lead our business towards success and that kind of thing, and, you know, younger people ask me hard questions I've had to, we've had to navigate this stuff for a while now and it's, it's getting worse for us. But now the, now the pastors and the not-for-profits are going, Hey, this is a problem. Right. Yeah. It's been a problem. It's been a problem. Yeah, it's been a problem, but now we're about to have that stripped away from us. So yeah, um, it, it matters what you believe and you just got to work through that on the front end and, and stick to your guns and have people that you trust and love that will, that will help you That's sort good. of stand in and stand up when it comes time. That's good. I think for me, the final Final word is for for a lot of us in the church world and in the Christian nonprofit world, we have had the inordinate and untrue blanket of nonprofit status and a protected nonprofit status that has led us to worship money over fidelity to God. And I think really at the heart of this is not, I don't believe the heart of this for them was staying on mission with Jesus and protecting kids. It was about keeping money. Um, now they, if, if God forbid one of them hears this and wants to come on the podcast and argue with us and, or have a a civil discussion, I should say, I'd love for them to describe how it wasn't about money. But I think what God is doing for us is forcing us out of our love of money and into, will we follow his narrative, even if it costs us our jobs? And, and, and I don't know the answer to that question for many will be, well, Let's find a theological way to navigate and worm our way around this without having to say we actually believe this. And and what I want to encourage pastors and nonprofit leaders to do is do what we do in the multi-faith world. Highlight your distinctives. Be civil. Love each other well. And if you do that, there is room for us to do that together and keep our nonprofit status. Um, But if we continue to let this narrative, these hyperbolized narratives rule, the center, we're going to find us ourselves in some really, really difficult places. And we're already there. You're there. Um, we're just starting to realize the fruit off of it. And there's a lot of work left to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think we haven't really done much more than scratch the surface. Mm. 
So there's more to come, much more to discuss, and we appreciate you guys listening. If you have questions, because I know we haven't answered all your questions in regard to this issue, shoot them to us at theologyinthedirt at gmail.com. We'd be glad to try and get to them. Heck, not try, we will get to them. Shoot us some questions, and we'll be glad to respond. Guys, thank you for the time today, and those of you who are listening, we really appreciate you listening. Thank you, and by the way, if you're listening in Ireland, because we see that you are, shoot us an email. Love to know who you are. That's a lot of fun for us. Thank you guys for listening. Also, don't forget to listen to the podcast. Rate it. Five stars good. Share it with your friends. The more people listen, the more exposure we get, the more people we can help wrestle through the nature of God, His Word, and how we live it out in the public square. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a great day. Out.